Welcome to the American Repertory Theater Podcast. In September, performance artists Diana O oh and Sarah Porkolov sat down at the ART with Mellon Assistant Professor Kareem Kupchandani of Tufts University for a personal, wide-ranging discussion. Diana O's performance of Clairvoyance will be presented as part of Oberon's ART Breakout series. It is the culmination of a four-part series of installations that began with Chosen Family Portraits on September 23, 2018 at Tercentenary Theatre at Harvard Yard, and continued on October 27, 2018 with White People Read at the Boston Public Library, which she discusses here. Hello, I am Diana O. Oh. I am an actor, singer, songwriter, creator, media justice activist, and I will be bringing monthly installations that center QT Pock power and magic that culminates into a concert about my own queer magic. She, her, they, them. Hi. Sarah Porkolov returns to Oberon also as part of ART Breakout with parts one and two of her Dragon Cycle. Sarah thrilled audiences last spring with Dragon Lady, a beautiful and honest portrayal of her grandmother and the supporting characters in her life story. This March at Oberon, Sarah will reprise Dragon Lady and perform it in repertory with Dragon Mama, which traces the journey of Sarah's mother from Bremerton, Washington to the unknown in Alaska. My name is Sarah Porkolov. I'm an artist, activist, and the creator of The Dragon Cycle. I will be bringing the first two in the trilogy of my work, Dragon Lady and Dragon Mama, next spring. Uh, my pronouns are she and her, and I am so happy to be here. I'm Kareem Kupchandani, and I'm a professor of theater and performance studies at Tufts University. I use he, him, his, and auntie as pronouns. <laughs> Let's join Diana, Sarah, and Kareem as they talk about being creators, performers, and artistic collaborators within their communities, about their personal style, and the importance of their respective Korean-American and Filipina-American identities in their work. I am incredibly excited to be with both of you because you're performing at my favorite space in Boston, Cambridge. Um, I've been here for two years uh, and all my favorite theatrical experiences have happened at the Oberon, um, including getting to perform them myself, which was the night I met you. Um, But also at the end of your performance, uh, Dragon Lady, where you knew who I was in the audience, you had seen me while performing, and which was just like a magical moment as an audience member to be seen by the performer too. So I just, I feel really grateful for the opportunity to be in conversation with both of you um, and that space as well. Um, I want to start by, asking you each maybe a, a, a sort of protracted question that allows me to hear where you are with, with your performances and uh, that you're gonna bring to the Oberon and then move into more of a conversation about where your intersections are. And, and does that sound okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. Great, okay, yeah. Um, so uh, I'll start with you, Diana. Okay. Um, so I've, uh, I've seen a, some of your work, uh, specifically the 10-part My Lingerie play, mm-hmm. um, and little snippets of it, and where you literally stand on a soapbox mm-hmm. um, and, and talk about uh, or, or ex- uh, have interventions around questions of consent um, and sexual violence and queer phobia um, and pleasure. Mm. Um, and, and one thing I've noticed from, from those is that the audience really matters to you. <laughs> um, 
and and that you know when they come really close to read what you've written um, or when you invite them on stage with you or even you I, I've heard you talk about the um, how you think about what your audience will do when they leave the show mm. and and so I'd love to hear about what you're planning for audiences here um, yeah because it sounds like the audience <coughs> really matters to you yeah, yeah. Um, I mean they do I'm, a, I'm you know I'm a real people person I've always been a people person and the the joke I had and I just came up with it and I was like that's a really good joke I was like <laughs> I'm a people person because I love meeting people who love me right really? <laughs> And then when you really break it down, it's like, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, when you're meeting people and they're giving you an energy of like, oh, my God, I'm here with you. I love you. It's like, yeah, let's do this. Let's have this exchange. I'm here with you. I love you. And to be able to do that with a single person is magic in itself. And then when you can do that in live performance with as many people as you possibly can, that's it. That's my drug. Like, that is what I love to do. I love being a machine for empathy and joy and fun and spontaneity and all those things and like taking people on a pleasure ride. And also confronting sh- things when I need to, well, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I forget your question. Um, what, what can audiences here expect? I mean, how are they going to be pulled into your performances or your interventions or actions here? Yeah, um, I like that. I've never heard it described as an intervention, but that like that's really I mean, you put your body strong. right there where people have to encounter it, so it, felt, it feels like... Yeah, yeah. hey. Yeah. Um, I, well, so we're doing this really cool thing where um, we're, I'm doing these monthly installations that are going to then culminate into a concert that's similar to my lingerie play where it's these installations that happen out in the street to then bring people into a theater to then digest and talk mm-hmm. and like do the real thing. Uh, so, so <laughs> I mean, how much can I say about these monthly things? Everything. Everything? So the first one we're doing, um, it's going to be at Teresita and it's going to be um, in Harvard Square and it's chosen family portraits and and the hope is that you know people come to bring their chosen family and it's for uh, QTPOC power and their allies and people who you know you when you identify as a queer person you end up creating your own families and your own kind of um like "Ah, you know thing and how beautiful is it to get to legitimize that and um, the way I like to see it is that it's like the photo that you put on your mantle Mm -hmm. so you can like throw your middle fingers up during the afterlife and be like we did it good you know (laughs) Um, (laughs) amen Amen. so that's happening in September and then October we're going to do white people read which is um, we're taking a section out of the Boston Public Library to put in books about um, the diaspora you know the experience of the marginalized people here you go yeah yeah books that we read but that white people will read um, and it's kind of pornographic. It's, you know, it's, it's something that brings me pleasure to know that I, we're not always the ones doing the teaching, that here yeah. is knowledge that's being sought out by um, people who are not of our experience. Yeah. And yeah. letting that be a, you know, a law. Yeah. How amazing. Um, and, then, and then we're going to take portraits of these books, of these book covers, and you see the hands holding the books. And you don't, it's not about centering whiteness, it's about centering this book mm-hmm. in front of whiteness. And what does that mean? Yeah. Who knows? Ah, oh, the poetry. And then um, in 
February, I th- is that when Infinite Love Party is? <laughs> My show mom's right there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. February is... No, February no. is Artist Royalty. Artist Royalty, Artist Royal- right. February is um, uh, the artist in her element doing portrait painting, and we're still developing this. I'm still developing this, but I think it's... Um, me posing and being painted by a cutie pock portrait painter, just posing and painting as, you know, Mona Lisa had done once. Um, and then we're doing the Infinite Love Party, which is a an intentional barefoot dinner, dance party, and sleepover yes. for cutie pock and their allies to come and like eat food, dance together, sleepover together, because um, I... I think that weddings are the best form of theater. They always feel the way that I want live performance to feel. Um, and so it's the wedding of my dreams because I don't think I'm ever going to get, you know, married one-on-one. I don't think that's uh, in, that's just not what I'm born for. So, um, and then it culminates into this concert called Clairvoyance that's about queer magic and cutie pock power and what does it mean to feel that that magic that we know that we have you know it's just we know that it's there we see it right I know when I look at you I'm like I I see you you see me we are seen um so we'll figure that one out and and maybe we'll plant some trees um quite literally um am I missing anything else I think that I think that's the package great (laughs) um Sarah I, I, I got to see Dragon Lady, um, and, and I think it's, it's like a stunning, stunning story that, that uses your, your grandmother's migration um, to the U.S. from the Philippines um, to, and to, to stage yourself as well and, and, and uh, to, to stage your politics and feminist politics, even when, when I think the, the show opens with her making fun, fun of you for being a feminist, right? Um, but it still stages a feminist politics across generations, and in and in some way, it uses music to do that, right? And and it's both her history as a cabaret singer, but your own virtuosic ability to sing, <laughs> to to see how an art form migrates along with trauma, along with uh, family and pleasure, and um, and I'm I'm wondering if so. I uh, I know you're you're doing the sequel. Um, so you'll be doing Dragon Lady and Dragon Mama, and I'm wondering how the sequel also takes up questions of family alongside music, if, <clears throat> if it does. Yeah, uh, I think that all art forms are modes of cultural documentation. Um, documentation that's different from history. Um, specifically here in America, the history that we have widely available to us and taught to us in our public schools. Um, it was written by the colonizers and by the people who won the wars and by the people who want to control the narrative. And that narrative is limited, problematic, and built on a lot of lies. Uh, so I think that in art, specifically storytelling, and I think that music is a different form of storytelling, there is a history that is more true. Yeah. And in my family, we're just performers. We, we wouldn't be the same without music. Like mm-hmm. music is in our, our system. It's in our bloodstream. And so Dragon Mama builds on the legacy of music um, as seen in Dragon Lady by my grandmother, by her skills as a performer and how music was really a place that she could be her full self um, in other ways, in other places where she couldn't be, even with her family. 
And so in Dragon Mama, music is, uh, is specifically a vehicle um, for the love story. That is this next play, yeah. which is a love story between my two moms. What it was like for my mother after she gave birth to me to realize that she knew that she was queer, fully queer, and that she wanted to spend her life with women. And she knew that as a mother, she didn't want to make the same choices that my grandmother had to make in the face of survival. And she knew that in order to do that, she had to strike her own path, but Mm -hmm. she didn't have anybody to model after. And so she was very lost in her journey. And then she met somebody who um, extended a hand, who who lit the way, and that was my other mom, Tina. And uh, it's really kind of magical because Tina is a singer. She um, she holds the record in Anchorage, Alaska for like the highest selling single cassette tape in the 90s. <laughs> and my mother actually met her when she was singing in the only gay bar in Anchorage, Alaska. Whereas in Dragon Lady, you see my step-grandfather meeting my grandmother. And I didn't even know that I had written almost the exact parallel of that scene until four different people pointed it out to me. They were like, oh my God, it was so crazy how that happened. And I was like, wait, what? Oh my God, it happened. Uh, So yeah, music is in Dragon Mama is the vehicle um, for how these two women express love for each other. Mm -hmm. I think as well, focusing, you know, the late 80s, to late 90s hip-hop and R&B, um, there was just a lot of, a lot of power. The, the politics of the music during that time, I, I just feel very deeply in my bones because I grew up with that music. You know, SWV and Vogue, Boys to Men. Oh, oh my God. All of that music has such a st- strong place of power in my heart and for my parents. Yeah. So that's how music functions. Great. Um, my, when I, when I started seventh grade, um, I was, we had an, uh, initiation and I had to lip sync end of the road and they thought it was humiliating, but that's how I discovered boys to men. And I was like, I fell in love with it, even though I was being forced to do it. I I loved it. So good. Um, Diana, you work with music as well. Um, and, and I'd love to know about, about What are your musical inspirations? Who are you drawing from? Who are your aesthetic legacies when it comes to music? Wow, aesthetic legacies. Um, Yeah, I mean, when people ask me, like, what what kind of music do you write? And it's always always like dot, 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 soul, pop, punk, soul, rock. Thing. It's soulful. It's soulful. I yeah. sing from here. It it like it literally feels like it comes like up through my vagina and like uh, ha, and then it arrives. <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of like aesthetic legacies, I mean, it's like I grew up always hearing the voice of Aretha Franklin, and I grew up listening to Etta James and Ella Fitzgerald, and yes, Boys to Men, and in Vogue, like all the things that that we grew up with and I I'm always unpacking like where does it come from like where do I get my voice from because it doesn't it's a sometimes it surprises me like it's it's you know what I mean Mm -hmm. when you're like oh I just riffed where did I even learn to like riff you know but it's somewhere there and my dad always used my dad grew up singing and he sings opera um he can't Mm -hmm. as much anymore because he's very 
unwell and sick now, but it was just always something that was there. And I, I feel like my parents were always forcing the three of my, my, the three of us to like sing with each mm-hmm. other. And that's kind of where I developed my sound. <laughs> it's like at parties, um, singing to my Korean parents and, um, boys to men. Oh my God. I sent my brother to a boys to men concert for his, uh, wedding anniversary his wedding present was that so come to our stuff boys to men come check it out at Oberon okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm wondering since this has come up like how how both of you because I, I think about this a lot but um, how much Asian American performance is actually indebted to black sound and aesthetics and music and um, you know, in, in these debates about appropriation, it's often uh, a white other appropriation. But what happens in these other kinds of crossings of Black Asian sharing of practices and aesthetics? And, you know, I think about Paris's burning and the use of fans and pharaonic uh, sculptures and uh, ninjas and, and martial arts movements, you know, the, the House of Ninja. But, but that there's the sharing of aesthetic practices across Black and Asian communities. And I'm wondering how, how you think about Black Asian borrowings, crossings, sharings. Yeah. I would say that we aren't studying the Asian at all. And if we looked into the history that's there, like even in the Korean shamanism and the Korean singing that happens at funerals and parades and like there's an ind- I, I'm so ignorant about it and this is really good because you're going to make me go pick up a book <laughs> and like go down a YouTube hole of like Korean chanting you know uh, but there's so much freakiness there um, that I'm really excited about uh, uncovering because I you know it's there's I don't I don't know it's, it's it's kind of this like back to the magic thing the like history thing of it being like in our bodies and our bones whatever I just wonder if there's something genetically there that we just don't know yet because we weren't fed this story why would we be mm-hmm. so that's what it brings up yeah you know I think <clears throat> in the last 10 years um, specifically in the last five years um, thinking about the, within Asian and API communities, the anti-black racism that exists there. Mm -hmm. Um, Growing up, my grandmother had a huge, a huge fear and dislike of Japanese people. And I didn't know why until I started learning my history and the Japanese occupation of the Philippines and learning how some of her friends and family members were forced to be, in quotes, comfort women Mm -hmm. um, to Japanese soldiers. Mm -hmm. And then in high school, I became friends, I had some Japanese friends, and then it really surprised me to hear the anti-black sentiments that my Japanese friends had. Mm -hmm. And my other mom, Tina, she's black. And so growing up with her as my mom from the age of four, Um, and having my whole black side of the family and then my Asian Pacific Islander side of the family, I was proximal to blackness, to to culture. And it felt like it was mine when I was young. I knew that I wasn't black Mm -hmm. and I felt though that I had access to expression, art forms and otherwise. Um, And it was only in college where I realized how how much of that wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. Though I was close to it, it wasn't mine. And I needed to recognize that Mm -hmm. and to... um, 
having a black parent was not a signed permission form to access blackness. Mm -hmm. That no matter what I did, I wasn't black. And in that acknowledgement, I could hold in the same time a deep appreciation and respect and develop a true relationship to the historical um, importance and historical relevance of what uh, black cultural um, uh, items such as music and art and dance um, have contributed to American culture. I mean, hip hop, jazz, that's an American art form. That's an American art form. You could trace its roots back to African diaspora. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's not enough credit where credit is due. And when I say credit, I don't only mean acknowledgement, but I mean in terms of capitalism, right? If capitalism is the spine um, of our American society and is the system which perpetuates all different types of inequities, uh, then we have people who are developing these art forms who are not being benefited or who are not benefiting from the system. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge. And it's a a journey for me, for sure. It It was really hard in high school to see that though I was, though I had access to those things, I was not black. Yeah. And um, to have somebody really close to me who shaped who I was, a whole side of my family. And to understand that you can do those things and you can develop a true, equitable, and deep, loving relationship um, across those lines. And to understand that there's a space that exists there that you can't traverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, and I, I think it's it's important that we acknowledge that we we don't develop our aesthetics alone, right? Yeah. And that we uh, do them in community. And I'd love to hear who your collaborators are, who you make art with, um, how they influence, who are the people who influence what you make. Um, yeah. yeah. And it seems like your, your work is really surrounded by people. Um, yeah. Who, who you're very warm with and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really inspired by my social scene, a lot of it, like my nights out, my nights out dancing and partying. And I mean, that is our, that's our savior place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the place, that's the pulse. That's what keeps us alive. Um, that is our beating heart. And that's the, like all my friends are pulled into my art and vice versa, you know. I mean, I can like rattle off 10 names, um, Orion and Bloom and Mayanne and Kevin and like Lita and Mariah and... <laughs> Um, my partner, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also like, um, I'm drawing back to that last question you had talked about and in terms of like who we look up to and, and what we, I guess I'm realizing that I don't necessarily have this, this clear, clear vision of this. Because I think very early on, I, I realized that I don't necessarily have a this thing, but I have like a this thing. Mm-hmm. Like it comes from this yeah. lower place of some sort, um, this gut thing. Mm-hmm. And I and I think maybe that came in because for so long in my life, it was like, you want to do what? Like how do you, what? You can't do that. That mm-hmm. like, that's not even an option, you know. Um, but I don't know. I talk about, I, I like, I talk about the gut a lot about following this space without even knowing what the result is going to be. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's so much for me definitely to unpack in terms of, yeah. 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 Anyway. Hi. (laughs) Is there any, any, are there any other, any folks you want to sort of invoke and as collaborators and people who influence what, 
what you do? Uh, I'd say my family, yeah. first and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I went back to them as, in, as a, an incredible wealth of inspiration uh, because what I had available to me in Seattle in the theater scene, I, I just felt it was like, that's, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. What is for me? I don't know. <laughs> where did I come from? And then I realized that where I came from was just rich and, yeah. and rife with possibility. And there was a need there to share those narratives. And so now where I am, you know, I'm six years out of college and I have this body of work that I'm developing that is specifically autobiographical mm -hmm. stories about my family. And um, in Seattle specifically, I'm doing much more community engagement. Mm -hmm. And so... I wanted to after I came out of college, but I wasn't quite sure what I had to offer. Yeah. I knew that I had a desire, but I didn't want to go to a community and say, hey, I think you and I should do something. Yeah. And then they're like, great, what do we do? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. You know, yeah. I, I, there's a lot to learn. And, and if anything, learning how to support the desires of the community that I'm in collaboration with. How can I be someone um, who holds a tool? Um, not necessarily sitting, you know, at the highest seat at the table. Um, how can I find radical ways to gather resources, whether that be monetary or otherwise, mm -hmm. um, so that these people can take it and do what they will. Yeah. Um, I like to think of myself as not necessarily an instigator and not as a manifester, but somewhere in between. That I, I love big ideas because I can take big ideas and I can articulate them into actionable items. And I can create systems of accountability and measures of success in terms of like business. How do we know that we're doing what you think you want to do? Mm -hmm. Well, I have tools to do that now. And I was only able to develop those tools when I started focusing on my own work. I didn't work with the director for my work for a very long time. Not because I didn't trust them, but I didn't trust them. <laughs> I had yeah. to learn how to trust yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to learn how to trust my intuition, to recognize what was intuition, what was doubt, what was something else, how to slowly take that little voice of doubt and make it smaller and smaller, and then to trust my intuition in moments when it was scary. And um, hopefully now developing systems in which I can say, here are some tools that maybe you can use and adapt to your mm -hmm. objectives so that you can also access your intuition, the thing that you already have that I don't have, the thing mm -hmm. that is unique to you and to your community to do A, B, and C. It's it's really interesting to me that you know you said you, your your the people you interface with are family, to make and that's what you stage and you said you know it's the people you party with and you actually stage parties too as part of your artwork and so I just love how you the people that you draw from you you give back to the world the the very things that they're giving you which I think is really really beautiful um, something that I'm seeing here that I see in your works as as, as well um, is just the, the, the body you put into the world. Um, you know, in, in your show, you're wearing all black, your hair's pulled back, um, and in your show, you're, you've got glitter and um, streamers everywhere and lights. <laughs> and um, I, I'm just wondering about your, like, style, um, whether it's every day or on stage, but um, what, <laughs> you know. Where do you um, want to begin? <laughs> yeah, okay, let's go. Yeah, let's Jade go. Jade rollers. Uh, but... Okay, right. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. Can I jump in? Go. Okay. I'm coming. Um, so yes. style. I mean, I find style is a tool, right? Yes. Let's talk about tools. And style. Agreed. And anytime someone compliments my outfit or whatever it is, I'm always just like, oh, this is just this is just armor. 
Like, mm-hmm. you just have to understand that mm-hmm. this came from the two hours before of all the me- of the meditating and all the, like, Palo Santoing and all the, like, drawing the tarot and all the, like, listening to the, like, affirmational speech of the day, mm-hmm. um, steaming my face with my Dr. Dennis Gross skincare um, facial steamer, which Amen. is amazing, by the way. Highly recommend it. So good. Just got it. Thank you. So nice. And then I choose my outfit. And then it's playtime. And then it's like, well, if we're dying every day and I'm dying and we are one step closer to dying, am I going to be okay dying in this outfit? And that's usually how I decide. And then I, um, yeah, I I mean, it it really, it's it's so spiritual. Like Mm -hmm. even doing art at all, there's so much bolstering. And I'm doing this because it's like, I feel like it's my spine. There's so much like... The strengthening yeah. of this so that you can even be generous and like what does it even mean to take up space and to me it's like you take up space by making space you take mm-hmm. up space by this we just took up space so great yeah. this chair makes noise when I do it. <laughs> um and uh and uh yeah yeah and I it's uh, and I'm just thinking about my parents and I'm really grateful for them yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm really it takes some really brave immigrant parents to to be the parents to artists. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. yeah like like Diana said, style, <clears throat> aesthetic. It's a tool. Yeah. I like to think of everything in the world as a tool. Besides, like my soul and my spirit. Like, yes, that's a tool. Yes, to do what I want to do. But it's like accessible to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like everything on the outside is a tool to do something on the outside. Um, in college, you know. I went to an art school and it was like, no bold patterns, no words, no statements, neutralize yourself. And I was like, okay, so leggings and sweaters, here we come. <laughs> and then after I graduated, I was like, oh, this is really comfy. I can like do squats. Blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, but I'm walking out in the world and I still feel like I'm wearing a costume that belongs to a time that I'm not a part of anymore. So what does this even mean for me? Um, and at that time, like Janelle Monet was making her way into the mainstream scene. And I remember watching her and just being like, oh, you are so powerful looking. I can just like feel your energy through the screen and your work aesthetically is like an allegory for the things that you, oh my God, oh my God. So then I was like, you need to go to your closet. I opened up my closet and I was like, ugh, all this stuff I don't even wear. And so I got rid of everything. And then I realized what I kept unintentionally was all like black and white and gray stuff. Maybe Janelle Monet influence. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. And then I was, I was doing that and I was like, you know what, actually, I can wake up every morning, just close my eyes and grab something, put it on, walk out, look down and be like, oh, I like what I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. So then I trusted my intuition. So if you were to go back to Seattle and look in my closet, you would only see monochromatic stuff. In the summer, I wear florals to access that flower spirit side of myself. Um, I like things flowing around in color. And then when fall, when winter comes, I tuck it away in a drawer with some lavender. And then in the spring, I open it up like a little surprise. But other than that, if you can see what I'm wearing right now, my white shoes, fresh and white. I feel so comfortable in these and just so slick. And then um, my biggest accessories are like my piercings. Some of them you can't see and others you can. And then um, my hair. And I just end. It's fascinating. You walk into the world, right? And people are going to make all these assumptions about you Mm -hmm. because of socialization. That's just what happens. And there's, 
I find so many of my peers spending so much mental, emotional, physical energy caring what other people think about them. And there's, there's an amount of that that you can't control. So what the hell can you control? I can control what size my pants are, what color my shoes is, and what my hair's doing today. And there's a lot of power in that. And I love it. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us about your piercings? Oh my gosh, why do you know exactly what to say when I'm ready to say it? Thank you. Should I ask it again or, you're, yeah, you are, know, you, or no, are you actually ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready now. I'm ready. Um, I got this one new actually for our year, for this year. This I'm, I texted my collaborator, Mayanne, and the way she sees performances, anytime you perform, that's actually witchcraft and you're casting a spell. And the second she said it, I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing now. So um, I got this and I was texting her and I was like, am I about to put this in my nose? And she was like, make the question bigger. Is the piercing going to pierce a necessary portal? And then I was like, yeah. <laughs> so that was it. And so once she said that, I was like, oh my God, have I been like piercing all these portals for like all this time? Because I have reasons for like each of these things. They're, like Every time I travel or some like crazy thing happens, I, um, I put a hole in it. Great. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks um, for asking. I, well, I know you, you you bring up you bring style into your performances when you, you know, I think you've shaved someone's hair on yeah. stage and can we expect any of those things here or or what what does does style come up in any of these performances that you're going to be doing? I think so. I think it has to. I mean, I mm -hmm. think when you're going to take your chosen family to take a picture and you're mm -hmm. like, well, you can't look. Busted. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Okay, like yeah, put some, yeah. put some ah uh, into yeah. it, right? <laughs> and not in like a superficial way, but in a like, no, honor your shit, honor your gut. Like, what do you want to be? Yeah. What's the thing that doesn't exist yet that you've always dreamt of being? Um, okay, take take up your space, make mm -hmm. your space, take your space. Uh, yeah, and and I I I've been wear I've been wear I don't know what I'm gonna wear. Thank you. You're bringing cool. up a lot of yeah. questions that I'm going to have questions about later. Great. Yeah. Um, does spirituality or magic or, I mean, I feel that there's something magical about just the reflection of those two scenes of, of lovers meeting. Mm -hmm. um, but, but how do you think about spirituality and magic in, in your own performances and craft and, and daily life? Yeah, it, it exists. <laughs> yeah. I accept that as truth. Um, yeah. I've experienced it firsthand. I also think that where we are in human evolution is that sometimes our brains, I mean, what we can process that is out there is um, infinite. Mm -hmm. We have as humans, as homo sapiens sapiens, like cognitive being cognitive, walking on this planet with an atmosphere. If the world was a clock for like how long it's been existing in the universe, we've been here for like a millionth of a second before midnight. You know what I mean? So there's so much to learn about the world. And like science, I mean, think about the periodic table of elements. That isn't even complete yet. People are discovering new elements. So like, why can't aliens exist? Why can't ghosts exist? And why isn't like rebirth, like why couldn't it be a thing? And I believe in that. I think yeah. that spiritually what I believe, I think that there is, there's life after life, that death is a necessary part of a cycle, that it's not the end, it's a different type of beginning. Um, and we have in my family a really strong belief in that. Um, 
colonization of the Philippines, Catholicism was huge, and <clears throat> for the indigenous people who were there, um, the spirituality that had to do with the earth and with animals and with each other uh, is just so strong and that lives on in my family for sure. I have some pretty crazy ghost stories in the family. Mm -hmm. um, there is even, we have family stories in terms of, I don't, not necessarily, not telepathy, but but knowing when each other is in danger and we have stories that exist. And in my performance, when I'm playing, people are always like, how do you play 32 characters? And I go, I play 32 characters. And then they go, how do you do it? I'm like, practice. But then they're like, but how are you those people? And I'm like, because I know them. Yeah. I really think that as a performer, when I'm on that stage, there's... There's something magic. Yes. I mean, you know, yeah. people talk about the magic of theater. You know, the, the show must go on. I'm like, yes, the show always goes on. It's been going on before we were alive. It's going to go on when we're gone. Um, and when I'm on stage, I'm just a vessel. I mean, that's really what happens. And I feel so blessed to have a body of work in which I can be a vessel for these people that I know to, like, flow through me. And... Um, it's crazy because the first time my family saw my work, there's a scene that you saw in which I play all of the uh, brothers and sisters in my mom's generation. And um, my family saw it for the first time. And afterwards, they were like, how did you know? And I was like, well, I've heard the story all my life. They're like, but no, 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 no. How do you, how did you know that, mm -hmm. how did you know how to be us? Yeah. And I was like, I have that in my system. It, yeah. We know our ancestors. Um, and I think it was when I started training to be a storyteller that I took that little door that was locked, perhaps, and I opened it. And now I can't close it again, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's clear to me that you're both very conscious of, while, while magic is happening, you're also very intentional about what you want to give to the world. <laughs> some things can, can move through you and, and come from the gut, but... You also make some very particular choices. I know you've you've had the audience get up and stand in a circle, right? Mm. Because there's some power to that. Um, but I think that there, there, there also. I, I wonder how you think about the the demographics of your audience, right? Mm. Um, who you're doing this for? I, th I think um, you know you're you're really intentional about uh, about um, this is for white audiences to to do. Uh, what, what's the session called? Something reads. White people read. White people read, right? Where others are about QTPOC mm -hmm. audiences. Um, and I think, you know, especially after leaving your your performance, I know so many diasporic folks <laughs> that I, I was there with were really moved by hearing their stories um, through you, right? So I'm, I'm, I wonder how you think about making theater that reaches different kinds of people <clears throat> for different reasons. Mm. Um, and, and what do you think of, and, and in these shows that you're bringing, what, what, are you, what are you trying to send to who? Yeah. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I think we go, we get into a dangerous place when it starts to feel like commerce, right? When, if marketing becomes this commerce trade because, because when I go to see art, I know that I'm not signing up for commerce. I want to see the artist's truth. That's what I want. Yeah. And I, I'm good so long as I know that you're being honest with me. And we're in a relationship. Um, and that's, you know, that's, <clears throat> I see that the 
I am in relationship with my audience members and I'm in relationship with the people I'm working with. And so I'm going to do my best to be good. You know, that's like be a good communicator, be a da da da. And that's not to say like, oh my God, nobody screws up because relationships are perfect at all times, which, you know, they aren't. Um, but then you work towards a common goal, which is what? Which is love, right? We just all, we all want to be in love and we all want to feel love in our hearts. So let's get there. Yeah. Um, and so I find that, you know, with, with something like, marketing that it has to always it's an extension of the work and it's an extension of the art and it's an extension of the person and the people and the community that you are harnessing here and I've so too often have seen the lie I've seen the lie in performance I've seen the lie in marketing and then I'm just like well I don't I already have decided that I don't want to be lied to anymore yeah. I want to show up for the work that speaks the truth mm-hmm. um, so yeah marketing I find it to be I know that this is, I'm about to say a controversial um, set of words, but I find it to be community engagement. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh, that's that's so yucky because then you're like walking in there and you're like, hello, community, I'm here. However, if you're part of the community and you're, you, I mean, you have a, like an empathetic, real relationship with it, then it will be real. So even before you like put out the, marketing thing it's like well let's harness some realness Mm -hmm. so that we can like do the realness great and and it seems to me that the community engagement is also the performance for you right these these preludes to some sort of big event Mm -hmm. are are community engagement they are marketing and they're the performance itself Mm -hmm. all at all at once it seems that that's sort of the way I, i approached and thought about your work as mm. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. I think if I if I go too deep into that breakdown, um, uh, it'll freak me out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So but if I like go to this place of like we are channels and mm-hmm. that's cool. So I'm gonna yeah. like do that. Yeah. Then I'll then I'll be all right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you rephrase the? Can you say um, the question again, please? <laughs> Market something no, no, no. with the oh, like, audiences. What do you? What, what uh, do you? How do you? How do you craft performances with particular audiences in mind? Um, or what? What do you want different audiences perhaps to to take away? Similar to what Diana said about truth, I'm only interested in telling the truth. Um, there's creative license in there. There's creative stretching, of course, but it has to be true. It has to be the truth. I'm not interested in telling lies. Um, and I, can, I know when I'm lying. <laughs> I know when I am lying on stage. And I can tell you what, I lie in almost everything I do except my original work mm-hmm. because I can't. It won't let me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of my audience, you know, it's, it's something that I'm still trying to learn. Like, when I start to think about, I'm creating this for a specific audience, just the wiring in my brain, I automatically go into, then I'm centering certain people, for sure. So when I first started making the work, I was like, well, ah, I'm unconsciously centering how I think white people are going to perceive this play, and I am unconsciously tailoring what I'm doing to like mitigate that, or to feed into that, or to come up against it. And it took about a solid year of doing Dragon Lady where 
I had to keep tabs on when my unconscious brain was doing that and I had to tell it to stop. So now I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. Um, and I've had some people, you know, in, in my play, I mentioned white people and there are racist white people in my play, non-racist white people. And I have people being like, well, are you, are you worried about what white people think? I'm like, no, not, not at all. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why not? Like, I, cause I don't. Next question, please. <laughs> so then I think about the community, uh, that I'm creating it for, and that is my family. And my family is wild and it's diverse. And as far as like how I reach out to those people, whether it be through marketing slash community engagement, um, again, like Diana, like I, it's hard for me. I don't want to go into some place and say, you should see this thing because it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Here's a discounted ticket. That's access, right? No, I'm always trying to think about accessibility. And when I say accessibility, I don't, I mean, yes, in terms for differently abled people and disabled people in the actual experience of my show, definitely. And then I think about in terms of narratives. Um, I could totally think that that community over there is a direct parallel to my story, but if I'm not inside of them, if I'm not a part of them, I don't know that for sure. Mm -hmm. And making that assumption is just like a different type of colonization, isn't it? And so like Diana, really developing relationships. When I was here last year, um, earlier this year, I met so many people, including yourself, and I was like, oh, I just want the time to hang out with these people. And um, there are some artists and residents in Boston that I'll be hanging out with in November, and then a lot of college students that I'll be having coffee with. And I'm hoping, and also some of the burlesque community as well, API performers in the burlesque community, um, and people who have just been following me on social media and I've been following what they're doing Mm -hmm. and then hopefully in the next nine months just continuing contact with them and developing relationships and sharing skills because I think it is a it is a sharing less of a presentation and like here's a good that will do you good Mm -hmm. you know and it's also there's something about creating an audience that makes you feel courageous that I know the difference between when I perform for a predominantly white audience versus a predominantly not white audience, it's, I feel better when I have my community in the front row. It just feels better, you know? And that's not to say like, hey, non-community members, you're not invited, but it's just something about having your family there who love you and Mm -hmm. who you love back really there. Um. Yeah. 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 Um, I will. I want to say I love you. Aww. I mean, I really have been so moved <laughs> by by the work that you do. Um, just the honesty that you both bring to performance, and um, when when you you know when you start the show by <clears throat> one of your shows that I've watched uh, online, uh, but start the show by saying you're going to see a Korean-American woman have agency. <laughs> and you also tell the audience, but take care of yourself and get up to pee when you need to. Mm-hmm. You know, just that, the, the love that you show for your audience. And, and also, you, I, I mean, I won't get over you making eye contact during the performance, but then telling me after the show, I, I saw you, you know, you were there. Um, I just, I think that those, you bring incredible love to your work and to the audience, and, and I just want to express real gratitude for that. So I'll be in the front row. Yay! Um, yeah, um, for your for your shows. Um, but but thank you both. Uh, you know, I just want to 
say that it feels so special to be here to have this conversation with all of you and then with everyone here at ART and especially the Oberon team. You know, my first time performing my work outside of Seattle was this March. And I know that the work is good. I know the power of the work. And to feel it in a different space with a different team and a different audience was not something I was prepared for and it changed me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that magic is and spirituality is within all of us and that there is magic that exists in specific places. And I really feel like coming to Oberon and ART, like magic's here. And I'm just like so excited to come back and make some magic. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> I will tag on to that. That um, I agree that Oberon is, is doing something amazing. And I've seen some of the best, best performances ever. And what do I mean by best? It's just the most honest and some of the best burlesque that I've, I mean, I'm, and I live in New York, right? And it's like, there's something about coming to Cambridge and you're, I'm watching burlesque and I'm like, this is unapologetic as fuck. Like, yeah. it's so powerful and it's so real and it's so organic. I mean, I feel like I came here in a really organic way. I'm really selective about the spaces I put myself in and they, uh, it's really heart-centered and we're in the middle of a renaissance and I can feel that and knowing that we wouldn't be here 30 years ago, this would not have happened. So it's, yeah. I feel like putting something on fire. <laughs> burning a building down. <laughs> just, just not the Oberon. Just yeah. not Oberon. Yeah. yeah, but everything else can go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You are both. That was a conversation between Diana O, oh, Sarah Porkolov, and Kareem Kupchandani. Thank you for listening. Sarah Porkolov's Dragon Cycle begins on March 20, 2019 at Oberon, while Diana O's oh, clairvoyance continues with upcoming dates to be announced. Check out our website at AmericanRepertoryTheater.org for dates and details, and follow us on Facebook or Twitter to join in on the conversation. For the ART, I'm James Montano. This podcast was produced by James Montano with interview audio recorded and mixed by Jonathan Carr. Music is Lux by Jazar from the album Servants. <laughs>